Now, you know, the great thing about having children, and this is a bit of a transition, is that one day they're going to take care of you, right? Children, you, you need to hear this. This is what your parents are excited about. This is what they're putting all the work into. This is why they're doing it. Because one day, one day, you're going to do the same for them. You know, I was talking to a friend yesterday who's from, from India, and he was telling me actually that in India, you can, parents whose children aren't taking care of them in their old age can prosecute the children. <laughs> so, you know, parents, this might be something you want to bring up in some way to the city or... No, it, it is true, though, that every child who's grown up in this a fairly good home with parents who've loved them and they, these children feel like they're in some kind of debt to their parents. It, and it isn't this just completely guilt, unhealthy thing, though it can be that. Even children who've grown up in a really bad home, part of the brokenness there is they feel this guilt and not knowing how to care for parents who haven't really cared for them in the right way. But in the healthiest sense, children have this feeling that they owe something to their parents. And out of that feeling, they respect them. It's this healthy, wonderful thing. The child thrives under a confidence of knowing that he or she's been loved. And then he or she respects the parents and honors them out of this gratitude for everything they've done. That's a sense of what Romans chapter 8 verses 12 through 17 is about. Paul begins the passage by saying, we are indeed in debt. We are debtors. And it could be that living in America in a time when so many people live under this oppressive and tyrannical sense of debt that we feel like that's what it means to be in debt to God. And that's not what it means. It's not oppressive. In fact, it's a freeing debt. That's what Paul wants to communicate to the people in Rome. I want to make this statement and see if you can fill in the blank. The Bible is the story of how God is dealing with evil. That's right. That's right. We've been hearing that kind of beat that drum being beat over and over again uh, for the last year or maybe longer, the year that I've been with you. You know, part of what Paul's doing in this amazing but incredibly difficult letter to the Romans is he's retelling the story of the Old Testament in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. And then he's putting together how this works out in the lives of Christians. You see, evil was this intrusion to God's good creation. It's the result of humanity, God's intended stewards of the creation, worshiping the creation rather than him. If you've grown up in the church or familiar with um, Romans, you might remember that in Romans chapter 1, this is what Paul says, that the creatures have, they've, humans have worshipped the creatures rather than the creator. This is a story of creation, of the Old Testament. God created this wonderful world in which humans were supposed to be the stewards, and yet instead of worshipping God and serving the creation, they've worshipped the creation. But then Paul moves on and he gets to Abraham in Romans chapter 4. You see, with Abraham, God intended to get the project back on track. The project of creation and of bringing restoration, healing to the world. That the world would be this good, beautiful place for humans and for all the creation. Well, after Abraham, 
there were the Israelites. God was going to work through this nation of people to get things back on track. And in chapter 6, Paul begins to tell the story of the Exodus. And he does it in light of Christian baptism. Listen, God's people come through the waters of baptism. And when they come through the waters of baptism, they join with Jesus in his death and resurrection. So baptism, as with the first exodus, becomes the way, the water whereby the slaves are made free. Do you remember that first exodus story? Israel was escaping from slavery in Egypt. And when they crossed the Red Sea, the waters came crashing down on their pursuers, the Egyptians. So the Israelites are left on the other side. They can move on into the future to seek the inheritance, the land that God promised them. And they can move without fear. They could go on without fear of pursuit from these Egyptians. Suddenly, their identity had changed. They weren't slaves. They were free people. This is what happens in Christian baptism. This is the story that Paul is telling that sin and evil that have been a part of our lives are completely washed away. They're drowned out and we're free to live without their power over us. This is what happens. If you've ever read the Lord of the Rings or if you've seen the movies and shame on you if you haven't really. There's this beautiful image When Frodo, he's on his way to Rivendell. It's the safe haven of the elves. He's being chased by the evil black riders. And his horse takes him across the river. And when the black riders who are pursuing after him enter the water, all of a sudden this flood, flash flood comes and wipes out the black riders. Frodo's left safe on the other side. This is an imaginative way of picturing what happens in baptism. If you've been baptized, you've been set free. Evil no longer has this hold on you that it once did. You might remember that then the Israelites come to Mount Sinai, that that's where they received the law, which was supposed to be this perfect moral guide for them. Well, this is Romans chapter 7. Paul starts with the baptism in Romans chapter 6, and then he moves to chapter 7 where they receive the law. But they find the laws incapable of giving them actual life like it promised. In fact, it enslaves them because they're unable to completely keep the law. But then, by surprise, they discover that Jesus has done what the law couldn't do. Jesus actually gives life. He fills people with his spirit. And now, when we get to Romans 8... The people of God are on their way to their inheritance, just like the Israelites were on their way to the inheritance in the promised land. Only now, there is a difference. It's not just one piece of geographical territory. And it's certainly not this kind of disembodied life in a heaven. Instead, it's the entire renewed creation. You, next week, CJ is going to preach on suffering and new... Cre- I think, CJ, is that right? <laughs> so I don't want to get too much into what he's going to do. But the idea is that the whole creation has also been enslaved under sin because of human sin. And that when humans are redeemed, they will inherit the creation and again be the overseers that they were made to be. So, 
By the time Paul gets to chapter 8, verse 12, hopefully you can see why he would say, we're debtors. We're debtors to God because we've been set free. God's given us our own exodus. We've been set free by God from ourselves, from our sin, from evil. Freed so that through the Spirit, we can be the kind of people that we were made to be. But God went went further than just setting us free. He made us children. This is Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 16. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. In fact, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You know, it's this really difficult thing to describe, but it's a common Christian experience. Then in the midst of a flow of thoughts that come at us from the beginning of the day, from as soon as we wake up, that when we're silent and still, we hear another voice inside of us, something else guiding us. And one of the things that we seem to hear in those times is that we really are loved. We really are loved. We no longer can just call him God as if if he's this impersonal force. Instead, God has invited us to call him Father. But then Paul takes it to another logical end. If we're children, we're also heirs and co-heirs of Christ. Now, can you imagine with me a young adult who was adopted? Never knew who his or her father was. And one day he gets this letter in the mail from a guy named Warren Buffett. Who says, I'm your father. And the person thinks, I mean, at first they're just excited. They finally know who their father is. But then as they take that a little further, it clicks. Wait, wait. That means I get... He's worth about $72 billion. So... When you take this idea to its logical end, it's even greater than the idea of being sons. And this is where Paul wants to take it. You see, we're not just children. We're also heirs. Heirs of God. Heirs with Christ. And the end of that is that we will be glorified with Christ. What does that mean? That we'll be glorified with Christ Will we float around like human light bulbs? You know, when Scripture speaks to Christ being glorified, it primarily means His reign over the new creation. Glory points to who Jesus is and the quality, the wise power of His rule. You see, glorification is the end goal for humanity. It's a restoration of the dignity, the worth, the honor, and status that God intended for humanity from the very beginning. You see, when God redeems the whole creation, redeemed humans will play the key role. They'll resume the wise healing sovereignty over the world for which God really made them in the first place. Here's the hope. Here's the hope that we have, that all those who are in Christ are indwelt by the Spirit, and they'll eventually reign. We really will reign in glory over the whole creation. Isn't it amazing to think about this? I mean, it's mind-boggling in a way, right? 
How many of you think about your daily life, your daily activities as this like kingly, queenly reigning over something? I'm sure your spouse or friend would correct you if you tried to live it in that way. But it's true. If you were baptized, you've been set free from evil. You've been filled with God's spirit. You are God's son. You are God's daughter. And eventually you're going to reign with Christ over the world. And if you believe that, can you understand why we have a debt, an obligation to God? It's a basic truth about Christians that we're debtors to God. That we have an obligation to the God who made us children and heirs. Now, God plans to set us in rule over the whole creation. To glorify us. If that's the goal for which we're made, then it's probably a good question to ask, why don't I experience that now? Or can I experience that now? Surely God didn't set us free so that we can sit back and wait to do something later on. How can we practice this? The question is, this is the question that we get an answer to. Are we becoming the kind of people who can reign over the earth? Are you being formed in such a way that God could could set you up as a ruler over all the earth? You see, the ways of practicing for glorious rule right now aren't, as we would imagine sometimes, learning how to throw your weight around or how to be bossy and whip people into shape. Instead, the way we prepare for glorious future rule It's a particular way of life. It's a life marked by holiness, prayer, and suffering. These are the ways that are marked out for us to be prepared to rule the world, to be God's stewards. Holiness, prayer, and suffering. You see, when we live according to the flesh... This is in verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. When we consistently make choices that are against God, against his creation, and against our own conscience, the natural end of that kind of life is death. Sin has this deforming effect on us. Sin misshapes us. So there's a death of our true self. A death of the self that was made in the image of God, intended to reflect his goodness. So, please hear this. Death isn't some arbitrary punishment from like a raging Hulk-like God who just gets angry at the snap of the fingers. Death is the fulfillment of a pattern of life. Death is a judgment that we bring on ourselves when we act against God. So here's what God does. He gives us his spirit, a a fresh moral energy for saying no to sin. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God 
are sons of God. The Spirit gives us energy to say no to the flesh. See, Christians are called to a way of life of saying no to all kinds of things that our physical bodies tell us that we not only want, but we need. Well, how do we put sin to death? Well, we need to remember all those videos on tobacco and drug use that we watched in elementary school. Do you remember those? In the power of the Spirit, we say no. Just say no. Do you remember that line? So when when Paul says in verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, he's making this allusion to the Exodus. You know, the Israelites, when they were in the wilderness, they were led to their inheritance by a pillar of cloud and fire. But the wilderness was a tough journey, right? And in that story, people were often tempted to go back to Egypt, bickering and fighting, saying, let's go back where there's at least food and water and we won't die. But they needed to resist the temptation. They had to follow God's personal leading all the way to the promised land. And it's the same way for people who follow Jesus. If we're called to be God's free people, people who are going to reign over the creation, then we have to learn to live as God's free people right now. We have to give up a habit of slavery. Whether it's a way of thinking, whether it's a way of acting, There's an art to being free. Let me put it this way. If we're to take redemptive responsibility for the whole of creation, we have to learn responsibility right now for the one piece of the creation, the one piece of the world where we have the most obvious control, our own bodies. This is holiness. It's the arrival of God's new creation, the way of his kingdom and his love in our bodies in the present. So, how's it going? How's the new creation coming about in your life? How is holiness growing up in you? Very practical. Can you think of a time this weekend when you said no to your flesh? To the cravings of your flesh. Can you think of a time recently, the last week, when you said no to anger and impatience? To pornography and lust? No to cowardice and yes to courage. You see, holiness is a way that we begin to reign over the world. By reigning over our own bodies. And allowing the new creation to take root, starting with us. How's it going? Is it growing up in you? Are you saying no? So we, we need a life that's marked by holiness. This is a way that we learn to reign. But we also need a life that's marked by prayer. You see, by the Spirit, we learn to call God Father. It's the Spirit who teaches us to cry out, Abba. This passage, it's without a doubt a reference to the way Jesus prayed. You know, in teaching his disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus called God, Father. And then in his prayer in the garden, before he was captured and before his crucifixion, he cried out, Abba, Father. 
It's really quite amazing that already within 25, no more than 25 years after his death, Christians are throughout the Roman Empire are praying the way that Jesus prayed. And the remarkable thing about it is the intimacy. We can call God's, God lots of things. We can call him Lord, which is a respectful term. We can call him Jehovah and all these names that we see throughout the Old Testament. But if we don't call him Father, we don't know the level of intimacy that he really wants to have with us. The way that God really wants to interact with us. He really wants to be your Father. Maybe you have a broken relationship with a father. God will be a good father. He'll teach you what a good father is. He'll restore that brokenness in you. Do you know how to call on him in this way? Now, what good father doesn't also listen to his children and love to give them really great gifts? Are you so bold as to come to God and ask him for exactly what you want? To tell God exactly how you feel. This is what it means to let him be your father. You don't pray just that his will would be done. You pray exactly what you feel and exactly what you want. And you let your father take care of the will that needs to be done. He'll form that in you. Now Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist pastor. And he had this great quote for preachers. Don't judge me by this right now, please. Prayer and preaching are like two legs. And if you don't want your sermon to limp, make sure your praying keeps up with your preaching. You get it? Two legs. If you don't want it to limp, make sure the prayer is keeping up with the preaching. Now that helps me with my work. But it applies to everything. Fill in the blank for yourself. If your prayer doesn't keep up with your work, your work will limp. If your prayer doesn't keep up with your parenting, your parenting will limp. If it doesn't keep up with your marriage, if it doesn't keep up with your friendships, whatever it may be, fill in the blank. If your prayer doesn't keep up with your life, what you're doing, your life is going to limp. If we're going to learn to be people who can reign, having the capacity to reign over the earth as God's stewards, then we have to be people who can pray, who call on Him as Father, who learn to be in relationship with Him in this way and to be guided by Him. But there's a catch. There's a cost to this path. The road to inheritance, the path to glory, it lies along the the road of suffering. You know, no servant is better than their master, right? It's common wisdom. And Jesus learned obedience through suffering. So do Christians. Learning to be a Christian, learning to say no to our flesh, to follow the Spirit, to love, to forgive, to be self-controlled, to be generous. These things can be so hard. So hard. I was thinking earlier, there's a comedian who has this line that he has, this comedian has a lot of children. And he said, you know, having four children is like being in the water drowning and then someone hands you a baby. Like, it's just hard. Life can be so hard. It doesn't have to be that. A lot of you aren't, you know, having parents of young children now, but life can, 
just feel like you're drowning sometimes. And yet at the same time, we have to fight against our flesh, fight, fight against the evil in the world, and try to be conformed to Jesus. That's suffering. That wall you feel that you just hit sometimes when you're trying to walk with Jesus and learn to be conformed to him, that is suffering. I think the most immediate way that we suffer is in our attempt, our fight to be holy. Don't be surprised and don't be ashamed. This is the path that we have to walk. To follow Jesus now requires us to go against the grain of the world. Against the grain of our own desires that inevitably creates suffering. It's an emotional, physical, and spiritual toll. The way we learn to reign is through holiness, through prayer, and through suffering. And we're debtors. We have this obligation to God to pursue Him in this way. But everything God calls us to be and do flows from the forgiving grace of God. God has rescued you. If you haven't been baptized, if you aren't a Christian, God is willing to do this for you, to rescue you and set you free. But if you are a Christian, you have been rescued. And so all this pursuit of prayer, of holiness, and of suffering, it's rooted in the kindness and generosity of the God who's loved you. It begins with his free, undeserved, by grace alone, forgiveness. Let's pray.